Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the blessings that you give us, all the ways that you lead us, the ways you inspire us, protect us, and guide us. We thank you, uh, uh, too, for the, this ministry of the Institute of Catholic Culture. We ask you to bless that ministry and Father Hezekiah and this good staff that helps him. Please protect our country, Lord, our, our culture, our whole world. Put a speedy end to this pandemic and heal those who've been physically and physically harmed by it. Ask you too, Lord, that uh, just uh, continue uh, to move your church to new and uh, greater heights through the initiatives that uh, you inspire us to do through your spirit. We ask all of these things through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, in the last talk, I um, started, uh, you know, to go through what we call the seven essential modules. So if you have a moment to click on CredibleCatholic.com and uh, you just hit what's big red button there that says seven essential modules, uh, you'll come up with these modules that were designed for young people uh, to give them the evidence that they need, the background that they need uh, in order to kind of stay in the church, stay believing in God, believing in a transphysical soul, believing in Jesus Christ, and of course the church. So we, we've designed these modules, highly graphical, lots of embedded videos, but with lots of evidence. And so it's all pretty much evidence-based. We went through one through three, um, uh, modules one through three last time and talked a lot about the, the soul, talked a lot about uh, the scientific evidence for God, things of that nature. Now, we're going to move into modules four, uh, five, six, and seven. Four is on Jesus. Uh, five is on the church and the miracles that point to him. Uh, six is on the, the levels of happiness. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. And seven is on why would an all-loving God allow suffering? Now, will I get to seven? Uh, with the help of God, perhaps, or the, the will of God better. But uh, we'll see. But uh, I'm going to give it a college try for um, uh, the you know, Jesus and the church and, and happiness levels and tell you why. Okay, so what are we uh, doing in module four? We're trying to give students the evidence for Jesus Christ. What uh, makes us uh, think that he really existed? All these kids, they watch television, they think, oh no, he doesn't exist. You know, uh, that's just a myth. We heard on the History Channel, blah, 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 blah. And so uh, we counter it right away uh, number one, we, we talk about all these external sources like uh, Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, testifies to Jesus, to his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, historical dates. He has no love for Christianity, no reason to, to testify uh, to Christianity except to vilify it, which is precisely what he is doing. 
So very, very good source there. Secondly, we talk about Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian. Again, uh, had no uh, particular uh, desire to defend the Christian church. He has, um, uh, you know, a testimonial uh, that is really important uh, in his uh, book on, um, uh, you know, the, the history of the Jewish people and what he has. Uh, you know, some of it was interpolated by a later scribe, but boy, it, even with the, all the interpolations that are removed, you can see he not only testifies to Jesus existing, that he was a wise man, um, that he also performed miracles. And that's, that's not a Christian scribal uh, um, you know, entry. Uh, that really is a part of it. And then, of course, that he was crucified um, you know, under uh, the procurator Pontius Pilate. So this one is a remarkable testimony. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, he also talks about John the Baptist, talks about other messianic movements, but never does he mention, um, you know, the, the, the working of miracles. Uh, this is really a, a remarkable text that shows just how influential those miracles were. More on that in a moment. Uh, in the origins of Jesus. But let's just keep going. So we, we go through, we talk about N.T. Wright's new um, historical criteria and historical uh, you know, assessment of the resurrection. These are really, really good arguments. Uh, they come from his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And I think they're very credible. Uh, they're on Christian mutations um, you know, uh, uh, from uh, Second Temple Judaism, which basically means Second Temple Judaism had a series of doctrines. The Christian church did not want to separate itself from those Jewish doctrines at all. Uh, but yet they did, specifically in the area of the resurrection. I won't go through that right now, but it's very telling evidence that a spiritual resurrection did occur, that it was witnessed. The church tears itself away from Second Temple Judaic uh, doctrine and declares that it's no longer going to be a group resurrection uh, at the end of time, which would be a physical resurrection, like a resuscitated corpse that kind of lives forever, that it's going to be a spiritual resurrection and glory is going to be right, just like Jesus Christ's resurrection. Individual resurrections start with Jesus, with St. Stephen, etc. So basically, you now have a completely different a set of doctrines and, and, you know, Wright says, why, why, why would the, the Christians have done this specifically with respect uh, to the resurrection and also the Messiah? We can figure out why they said that with respect to the Messiah, but the resurrection, unless they had experienced something so profound that it caused them to separate. The same thing with the rise in, in the Messianic movement of Christianity. In all Messianic movements, uh, you know, during the time of Jesus, and there, there were about 11 or 12 of them, the N.T. Wright list. What's really interesting is all of them die away within, you know, between six months to about a year and a half. The, the Messiah, the purported Messiah is publicly humiliated or executed. That's it. It's gone. Not Christianity. No, Christianity just goes sailing forward. And not only does it go sailing forward, it grows exponentially as it's sailing forward. And 300 years later, basically is thumbing its nose at the very empire that persecuted it and takes over the empire. Now, you, you got to say to yourself, that's really unusual. And Wright says, well, why? And again, he comes up with the uh, not only the resurrection, but the apostles' ability to work miracles in the name of Jesus. This is really critical. 
because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the fact that when they just say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, rise, arise. And all of a sudden, these miracles are taking place. They're going to have to say to themselves, well, this is obviously divine power. They're raising the dead here. They're healing people and, and, and so forth. Why in the world would God raise people in the name of Jesus if Jesus was not the Son of God, precisely, uh, you know, risen in glory, precisely as the church was claiming? It becomes really you know, important testimony. So it's not just the resurrection appearances themselves. Yes, that, but the risen Jesus in the name of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is working. God is working through the name of Jesus, the essence of Jesus, who is, you know, writ large in the name, right? There's a Semitic culture. And it just it says, God is saying there, the Christian church is right. He's exactly who they say he is. He is my son. He has risen in glory. And so that's how this power is is being affected through his name. So these things are there, and the kids get it. I mean, they absolutely they get the significance of it, not to mention the fact that all this is going on within living memory of Jesus. So we zoom now to, you know, the, the Shroud of Turin. And, and the reason that we do is because, as I said last week, kids love palpable, empirical, scientifically validated data for their faith to rest on. It's just a fact of life. The more you give them, the more they eat it up, and the more they are just transformed. You can see their eyes light up. You can see as they're hearing this stuff, oh my gosh, this could really be true. This is not just a myth, you know, and so as they're sort of getting the evidence, and, and the more scientifically validated, the better. Uh, it really does spark their faith. And the Shroud of Turin is just made for our time and made for young people in our time. No um, historical artifact has ever been scientifically tested nearly as much as the Shroud of Turin. There are truly, truly hundreds of scientific tests that have been done on the Shroud of Turin. I'm just going to go through this very briefly uh, with you, but with some salient points that really get to the kids. Uh, this is, uh, most of you know, the Shroud of Turin is a 14-foot uh, linen cloth uh, by uh, three and a half uh, feet that contains uh, a perfect photographic negative image of a man who was crucified in an identical way to Jesus of Nazareth as recorded in the Gospels. The interesting part about the cloth is that the blood actually is uh, on the cloth uh, from, you know, the crucifixion wounds before the image. So the image is going over the blood, not vice versa. Now, you'd think if this was an artist, he'd have the image there and put some blood on top of the image. That's not what this cloth is. And, and of course, the perfect photographic negative image, how does a medieval artist even begin to know how to do this? So, I mean... Uh, Right away, it's mysterious, uh, and, and it's very intriguing to the kids to, to, to see this. But let's go through some of the, the, the essential problem with the 1988 carbon dating uh, that was done by three laboratories, and then uh, let's take a look at why that 1988 carbon dating is wrong, then quickly go through the, the crucifixion evidence and the blood evidence, and then quickly go through really important, the resurrection evidence. This is the thing that seals the deal with the kids on Jesus once they hear this resurrection evidence, writ large, 
right on the shroud. So let's, uh, 1988 carbon dating. I mean, half of you uh, probably watching the seminar have heard that the shroud was dated uh, to the 15th century, um, you know, maybe the 14th century uh, by carbon dating analysis 1988 at three very reputable labs, et cetera. So uh, it looked like, okay, you know, this is probably a forgery. I mean, everything seems to point that it wasn't a forgery, but I guess it was a forgery. Uh, now, what happened and, and how did these labs get that sample? Only one sample was taken from the shroud. It was taken from a, the most controversial part of the shroud you could have. It was a place where uh, in the fire of Chambéry, there was, you know, silver, molten silver went through, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the shroud and, and caused a bunch of holes and perforations to be along the side of the image. The image is not harmed. But along the side of the cloth, uh, cloth there uh, are these perforations. And so these sisters came, uh, you know, after the fire of Chambéry, and they actually used this thing called invisible mending. And they took cotton fibers uh, that were dyed with a gum dye mordant that was, you know, very close to the color of the linen. And they, they wove it in so they could, you know, patch up those holes and then put a backing cloth uh, on the back of it. Now, um, why would you take a single sample from the most controversial spot on the shroud? I'm not saying it's fraud, but boy, it looks really biased. I'll just say that. The second thing that's very interesting to, to, to note is that um, uh, Dr. Ray Rogers, when he saw this, essentially, he's the thermal chemist who headed up the Shroud of, Re uh, of Turin Research Project. He saw the dating test and he just said, oh, that's, that's it. You know, um, uh, we're, we're sunk. You know, this, this thing has been disproven. Well, then two researchers, uh, uh, Benford and Marino, come along. And uh, what do they do? They, they actually say, well, you know, we actually can reproduce these fibers from the exact spot that, uh, you know, uh, from which the sample was removed. So Rogers actually has some samples himself left over from the Shroud of Turin Research Project, which took place in 1978. And uh, he takes a look at those and he begins to analyze the spot where it was taken from. Guess what? Cotton fibers are in there plentifully. And in addition to that, they are dyed with a gum dye mordant that was only available in medieval Europe clearly to patch the holes in the cloth. The, the shroud itself is linen. So there's no way there's going to be any cotton, you know, in, in the shroud. If you go anywhere else in the whole shroud of Turin, you're not going to find any cotton. But you will in those spots that were woven with the inv invisible mending technique of the sisters. So, yes, you take the, 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 the sample from there. And, you know, uh, uh, Ray Rogers just said, uh, you know, in 1990, you know, this sample is completely invalid for uh, finding a, a proper dating of, of the shroud. You know, I've, I've gone through pyrolysis. I've gone through, uh, you know, mass uh, spectrometry and mass spectrometry, uh, spectroscopy. I've, I've done, you know, the uh, thermochemical analysis. And I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, this, you know, with the cotton fibers, the gum dimorden, et cetera, et cetera, this no way can be used validly. Uh, to test the shroud. Then comes uh, um, uh, Tristan Casabianca. Now, the poor guy, you know, he's a French researcher. 
And he's been trying for almost 30 years by a Freedom of Information Act to get the British Museum to release the actual raw data from the sample. And I think the Cotters and others were there at the Museum of the Bible uh, presentation of Tristan uh, there. But the, the main thing is he, he goes ahead and he does, he you know, finally gets this thing from the British Museum. They relinquished it at long last. He subjects the raw data from all three labs uh, to a series of, of uh, statistical uh, analytical tests. And he shows conclusively that this thing has got so much variegation, so many Right, uh, there's so much variance in the levels of certain kinds of uh, 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 things, and so much variance in the actual dating of those uh, various kinds of materials in the sample that was used. It very probably means it came from a mixed sample, where some more modern material was mixed with more ancient material, etc. But anyway, the stratification variegation of the of the samples, he just had made it impossible, uh, you know, to to place you know, any faith in, in the validity of that 1988 carbon dating. Okay. So, I mean, the 1988 carbon dating been debunked. So not the shroud has been debunked. The supposed debunking of the shroud has been debunked. So is there any way we can tell what the real date of the shroud of Turin was? And the answer is, yeah, there are three, uh, actually four major tests that were done by Giulio Fonti, by Ray Rogers and a variety of other uh, people who are uh, either thermochemical or mechanical uh, tension analysts. Uh, the first one was a Fourier-transformed infrared spectroscopy. The second one was a Raman laser spectroscopy. The third was a tension and compressibility test. And the fourth was a vanillin test. Uh, now, it's taking me too long to explain all these tests. Basically, if you take all the results of this um, you know, those uh, uh, four other kinds of non-carbon dating testing uh, on the Shroud of Turin, which essentially uh, three out of the four tests are measuring chemical elements or molecular elements or, you know, uh, molec uh, you know leftovers of molecular enzymes that decay over the course of time. You can actually give a pretty good, you know, estimate of what the date was. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 AD plus or minus 150 years. So uh, uh, that's a, a pretty uh, significant, um, uh, you know, uh, thing. So that, that really quite, quite remarkable. So um, uh, points right to the time of Jesus. Second thing that, that happens is, is we've got a bunch of pollen samples in there, and I'm just going to go through. These are external uh, ways of dating it. The pollen samples, though, you know, have a proliferation of pollen samples that come from northern Judea and Jerusalem. That's the highest number with uh, uh, four ind indigenous pollen samples that have never been found anywhere besides uh, northern uh, Judea and Jerusalem. So that's pretty clear that this shroud was in Jerusalem for a long, long time. More on that in a moment. Then, of course, Odessa, Turkey, then Constantinople, Turkey. Then finally, where the shroud appears in Neary, France, right? And, and uh, that's the least number of pollen fossils. And then by the time it gets to the shroud of Turin, it's all already encased in very few pollen samples from Turin itself. Now, um, we'll, that'll be important in a minute. Now, the second thing that's, that's really important is there's these two coins on the man's eyes. And, and um, the Roman leptons. And that's you know worth less than a cent, 
but they're used to hold the eyes closed if the eyes, you know, came open after, uh, the, you know, the, the person died when they were put into the tomb. So they put the two Roman um, leptons on the man's eyes. Now, what's interesting is the it, it imaged, uh, uh, you know, and I'll talk about that image in a moment. But that image of those coins shows up very uh, clearly so that you can see four enigmas on those coins. Enigmas that differentiate uh, these Roman leptons from other Roman leptons that are around in the Roman Empire. And uh, I won't go into the enigmas themselves, but the main thing to remember uh, here is that all four of those came from a special minting of leptons by Pontius Pilate in 29 AD in Jerusalem. You tell me how a medieval forger got those precise coins and put it on the man's eyes. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, impossible uh, to conceive of how, how that would be. But that's precisely the minting of the Roman leptons that are there. And so, uh, again, another good source of dating. There's an, yet another source of dating. There's a face cloth of Oviedo, uh, O-V-I-E-D-O. And uh, it's in Oviedo, Spain. And th this face cloth does not have an image on it. It only has blood stains on it. Face cloths were used to transport, for example, a very macabre body from one, uh, you know, from, let's say, the cross uh, to the tomb uh, where the body would be laid. So the, uh, as, as essentially, uh, you didn't want to transport, right, the uh, the, the body uh, with the face so beaten and, and so macabre and the pleural edema fluid coming up through the nose or the out of the mouth, et cetera. It, it was very horrible for somebody you loved and respected. So they basically took a face cloth, they wrapped it around, right, the face, and then put it over the top of the head going down to the nape of the neck. And then they transported the body over to the tomb and they removed the face cloth and rolled it up in a place by itself and then laid the body in the tomb. And so um, uh, they had to wrap it up fast because, of course, the, the Passover was uh, um, nearly there. And, uh, of course, we know from John's gospel that when, um, you know, uh, John and, and Peter arrived at the tomb, they saw that face cloth. Well, that face cloth, uh, I'll tell you why I think this was, was recovered for sure. Now, what's interesting about that face cloth is it has the same pollen fossils as the Shroud of Turin, uh, except for it takes a tour into Spain instead of into France. And here's what happens. Uh, it, it's, it, we have a proliferation of pollen fossils uh, there in the, in the uh, face cloth of Oviedo from Jerusalem in northern Judea. Then it goes to Odessa, Turkey, same as we saw before with the Shroud of Turin. But instead of going to Constantinople, uh, in about the 10th to 11th century, or maybe a little earlier, it actually, that's what the shroud did, it goes to Spain right away. Now, why is this important? Because we have a provenance for the face cloth of Oviedo that goes back to 616 AD. That's when we have Bishop so-and-so gave this cloth to Bishop so-and-so, and we have a record of that cloth and what it looked like, and this that bishop handed it over to this bishop who finally handed it over to Isidore of Seville. Isidore of Seville takes it and, um, you know, the, uh, the 710 or whatever it was, takes it, puts it into the Cathedral of Oviedo in its own little separate chest, 
and then that's where it stays. Now, what's so great about that is you have an established provenance going to 616 um, uh, AD. Now, here's what debunks all the medieval myth. There are 120 similarities between the, the bloodstains on the face, the head, and the nape of the neck, and on the Shroud of Turin, and the face cloth of Oviedo. 120 similarities of irregular blood stains on both cloths. Do you know the odds of this happening by pure chance without that, those two cloths touching the same face? I mean, it's utterly astronomical. So, uh, you know, essentially this face cloth has all the correct blood stains, resembles the Shroud of Turin, takes two different pathways, but it's been around since 616 AD or before, and we've got the provenance, and here's the kicker. If it touched the same face, then the Shroud of Turin has to be at least as old as 616 AD, same as the face cloth of Oviedo, if not before. Was the shroud around, um, you know, prior to medieval times? Absolutely it was. I, I have not a single doubt about it. And, and you can't explain all this data uh, without it. Okay, enough said. I think it is very reasonable to conclude that the Shroud of Turin originated in about 50 AD, right in that neighborhood. The coins, the other tests, right, before 616 AD, with face cloth of Oviedo, etc. Okay, and the pollen fossils being almost the same for the, the, the first, you know, 500 years uh, that the shroud and face cloth were around. Okay, so let's go quickly to the blood evidence. By the way, the kids are, are fascinated by this. They love the science. They love the validation. And so uh, I think just kind of looking at this, almost like sleuthing it, uh, like, like a, a good research scientist would, uh, is fascinating to them. The blood evidence, just really quickly, the kids get it, right? Uh, every single one of these blood stains, uh, supposed blood stains on the cloth, is there's no paint, there's no no dyes, uh, you know, there's no molecular construction like it at all. That's the first thing that's really important. Secondly, every one of these blood stains has genuine hemoglobin. Dyes and paints don't have hemoglobin. Number two, it has a partial genetic profile. Stains and uh, you know, and blood and and I'm sorry, stains and, and, and dyes and, and rubs and so forth don't have uh, partial genetic profiles. And you go right down through the thing. It's got an AB positive blood type. You know, paint and dye doesn't, doesn't have blood type. And furthermore, it, it's got, you know, some really bizarre uh, enzymes that are uh, uh, combined. The ferritin and uh, uh, creatinine are two enzymes that are combined in all the blood stains in the clot. But how do you get, a, you know, a synthesis of creatinine and, and ferritin? Through a polytrauma, uh, you know, prior to the time of death. And that's exactly the way Jesus died. I mean, the recording of the polytrauma he went through is right there in every single blood stain on that shroud. This is no paint. This is real blood, a blood of a tormented and tortured man. Okay, what's the interesting thing about the blood? I know I'm probably going into too much detail, but I'll just simply say it really quickly. The bloodstains reveal that the man was crowned with thorns. We don't have a single historical record of a person who was crucified and crowned with thorns except for Jesus. Why? It makes sense. Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. And so, of course, 
uh, this is kind of that sarcastic thing. We'll make him king. We'll weave a, a crown of thorns. Interesting, too, about the crown of thorns is it's a Roman crown, not a medieval crown that just goes around, you know, the, 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 the crown of the head, but one that goes over the top of the head. It's a Roman crown, almost like a Roman helmet, right? And so would the medieval forger have known uh, what a Roman crown was to get make sure that he got the right kind of crown to fit the historical period? Uh, I don't think so. But the main thing is, again, we see the spear, um, you know, the, the, per, uh, the, the perforation that's very clear. It's a, it's a big uh, blood stain. And what's interesting is if you look at that uh, blood stain, uh, I'll make a long story short, it's going between the fourth and the fifth ribs. It's proceeding up at a 45 degree angle, more or less, into the uh, uh, chest cavity, right? And as it kind of moves up into the chest cavity, the chest cavity is filled with fluid, right? Filled with uh, what looks to be like a liquid, a clear liquid, because of the gasping and the panting of the man on the, uh, on the cross. And so he, it, it penetrates that and outflows a clear substance, after which it penetrates the, the, the heart and, and outflows the blood. So, I mean, it's right at the right angle. And guess what kind of, uh, you know, uh, of uh, weapon was used to produce that wound? It was uh, the, the, the spear with the triangular head of a Roman legionnaire. And that's, you know, obviously the kind. How would a medieval uh, forger even know what a legionnaire spear w- would look like, you know, let alone get the right angle, et cetera? And, and then you've got a bunch of other things that are very uh, interesting, too. The way that the, 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 uh, the, uh, the hands are nailed. I mean, this is done by an expert. It's going through, right, the, uh, the, the, at a, a 45-degree angle pointing downward, going from near the middle of that hand, but down into this series of bones over here, and then protruding out the other side, back of the wrist, right, where it's going to fasten on the bones, will hold the body onto the cross, and, of course, it would be maximally painful going through all kinds of nerve centers, you know, around there, et cetera. But a very interesting Pierre Barbet did a real analysis of it. And this guy, uh, uh, Zujabi did a, a, another, um, or, or Zugabi, as some people call, um, uh, did another, Frederick Zugabi, uh, did another real analysis of those wounds. And it is right on the marker uh, with respect to not only to the gospel accounts, but what's uh, even interesting is how would you get uh, these hands to stick uh, you know, if he just goes through the palm straight into the cross, not going to work. I mean, it's just rip right through that flesh. So all these things are there. But if the flagrant, the the, uh, the whipping too is really interesting, because the guy was whipped a hundred. The, the victim was whipped a hundred and twenty times, and, and it's guess what kind of a um, a whip was used? It was a Roman flagrum that had three strands, and at the end of the strand, you've got bone chips and and, and metal. Uh, chips that are at the end of the, the strand, and, and they're wrapping around the man's body, so they're coming right around, you know, uh, you know, up to his uh, chest, not just on his back. They're all down the legs. This is exactly what the Romans did, and of course, we know that the guy on the left uh, was about four inches shorter than the guy on the right, because you can see where the, the the major point, you know, the focus of the weapons is coming from. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of information that seems to resemble a unique crucifixion in the history of humankind, 
that of Jesus Christ as recorded by the gospel accounts. It's written there in the blood on the shroud. Kids are fascinated by this. You know, it's like, wow, you're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. And so, of course, now we get into the resurrection evidence. I'm going to move on it fast because I want to get through some other material. But the resurrection evidence is really telling. The first thing is, there's an image, as I said, it's a perfect three-dimensional photographic negative image of a man who's been crucified in this way. Remember, the image is on top of the blood, so it comes onto the cloth after the blood. So the man is put inside uh, the, 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 uh, the cloth, right, the linen cloth, the shroud, and then the blood sticks to it. And then a few hours later, after, after the blood is stuck to, to that, uh, somehow this image is produced. And how did it get produced? Well, you'll notice that the image is literally almost floating on the very uppermost surface of, of, of the cloth, on the uh, uppermost surface of the cloth. And it's just floating up there. And uh, that... that uh, uh, image cannot be produced by a liquid or a vapor or anything like that, because if it were a liquid or a vapor, it would have penetrated into the middle of the cloth, into the middle of the fibers of the cloth. But not this image. This image is on the surface of the fibrils and even on the very surface of the uppermost uh, part of, of the cloth. So it never penetrates to the middle. If, if it had been a liquid or a vapor, it would have penetrated and spangled. But this is so precise, perfect three-dimensional image. It's like a photograph. It is so precise. So it sure wasn't produced by chemical means. It wasn't produced either by heat. Because heat, if you scorch, for example, the, the, the shroud, you can, you can use uh, you know, a test uh, you know, uh, called fluorescing. And you can tell instantly whether there is carbon uh, residue from a scorching that's there. It fluoresces very clearly. No fluorescing on any part of the shroud except where the fire, uh, you know, the molten silver went through and, and penetrated the cloth and, and were, was patched up by the, by the sisters. But aside from that, in the image itself, there is no, scorch, no fluorescing and no scorching. So how did it get produced? I mean, we only have one thing left. If it isn't heat, if it isn't chemical, thermodynamically, it's, it's got to be light. Okay. So... Uh, what kind of light? Well, uh, John Jackson, uh, the physicist who was um, you know, part of the uh, Shroud of Turing Research Project, he's very active today still, uh, basically speculated it, it would have to be vacuum ultraviolet radiation, which is a very, it can be in a very short pulse, but give a very bright burst in that short pulse. And this would normally come from lasers. Uh, in this particular case, an ARF eczema laser uh, could do something like that. Uh, and and what, would you, what would be required uh, to produce that image? Six to eight billion watts of light energy would be required. Right? Remember, this linen cloth is a non-photographically sensitive cloth. What's going to be required to emblazon that image just on the very surface of the cloth in a perfect three-dimensional um, uh, photographic negative image. You're going to have to have six to eight billion watts of light energy. Now, that's like saying, uh, you know, a half a million searchlights worth of light energy, if you're with me. Now, how does a dead body produce a half a million searchlights worth of energy? But you say, well, why does it have to be vacuum ultraviolet? Why does it have to be lasered? 
because the pulsation can only be for one forty billionth of a second. If that light source at six to eight billion watts lasted for more than one forty billionth of a second, I can assure you of this: there would not even be. Well, there's certainly the the entire linen would have been consumed. I mean, burnt, snuffed, and then even the smoke from the carbon would have been snuffed. I mean, there would have been so much heat. Forget about it. You wouldn't have found a residual left. But one forty billionth of a second—that's the sweet zone. Now, in two thousand and ten, uh, uh, you know, Paulo, Paulo di Lasaro and and his uh, you know uh, physicists at, in in, uh, in in Italy actually replicated this. Um, uh, color, the exact dehydration, the yellowing features, the exact spectral lines uh, that are given by the Shroud of Turin's image, exactly by using ARF eczema lasers uh, at an intensity of about six to eight billion watts for one forty billionth of a second. Now, what is important to note is uh, how many ARF eczema lasers would be required to produce the image on the Shroud of Turin? 14,000 which exceeds all of the, the, uh, the uh, laser capacity um, uh, that we have in all the laboratories uh, of the world right now. So, I mean, this is like, whoa, how did you get this image? Oh, but the mystery does not stop there. I mean, the kids are kind of blown away, like, whoa, you know, all this light, you know, coming out of a dead body. This is highly unusual, not a natural cause to explain it. Then the other thing that's really unusual is, if you look at inside the hands on the right, so the hands are folded up there uh, in the middle of the shroud, and you look at those hands, you'll notice, uh, you know, that uh, the bones in the hand, and then also the flesh that's around the bones, right? You'll notice that uh, it actually has three dimensionality. It actually, you know, if you start looking at that image and you start doing cuts of them, right, to to get that three dimensional imaging like you would have in an MRI. Right, and you start cutting, 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 and layering, 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 like an MRI. Uh, you can actually see that it is three dimensional, and it's not just three dimensional with respect to you know the parts of the of the uh, cloth that are not touching, um, you know the the body, and the parts of the cloth that are touching the body are in perfect three dimensional correspondence. But then the bones inside the body and the flesh around the bones are also in perfect three dimensional imaging. And what's really weird is you can't get the bones and the flesh in perfect three-dimensional imaging unless the cloth penetrates the body, unless it literally collapses into the body. And so we can see uh, then that this, you know, the Christian view of the glorified resurrection, risen in glory, risen in light, risen in embodiment as well. So it's not just light. It's, it's, it's his body, it's emanating light, and of course, it's a spiritual body. It becomes mechanically transparent, right, from a physics point of view, and, and, and it's, it's, it's spiritual. And, and so the body is either passing through the cloth or the cloth is collapsing into uh, the body. But uh, in, in, in any event, uh, you can see that the kids are stunned when they see the description of St. Paul of the Pneumaticon Soma, right? The, the spiritual body. Or they're seeing, you know, the descriptions of, of Christ in his glory and, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, the, the descriptions that, you know, like Matthew's description, you know, everybody bows down and worships. Or John, who, you know, even though he has a very corporeal uh, view of Jesus, right? Uh, what does he keep calling him? 
hakurias, with a definite article, which means the Lord, which is the, you know, the, the Greek translation of the divine name Yahweh, Adonai. So that, uh, you know, all of a sudden after the resurrection, John starts calling, you know, in, in, in the lips of the apostles and everything, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord before the resurrection in John's gospel. There's Lord, which could mean master or mister or something of that nature. But no, the Lord, the translation uh, of the divine name. So this is really interesting. Now Luke, of course, say, states it outright. They thought they were seeing a ghost, etc. So, I mean, the kids are going, whoa, only the Christians have this view of spiritual, glorious uh, embodiment of, of Jesus after the resurrection. And yet that's exactly the story told on the Shroud of Turin. If you want to just get a good sense of this, just go to module four, just click on it, dedicate 40 minutes to just all the embedded videos from all these good scientists that are looking at it. It's very exciting. It's very compelling to watch. And the kids, they, don't, they can't get enough of it. So we're actually doing enhanced, advanced modules now uh, for seniors in, in high school and for college. And these things, of course, when they come out, will have even more detail. Anyway, I, I, I've given you far too much detail, but fascinating, huh? You want to get Jesus off the ground? Talk not only about the historical evidence, not only about N.T. Wright, Messianic movements, Tacitus, Suetonius, uh, uh, Josephus, etc. Talk about the shroud. It really is something. Just like God prepared this thing 2,000 years ago for scientists in our century to look at and go, wow, I think I'll convert. And a lot of scientists have. Let's quickly go to uh, the, the uh, module five. Module five is attempting to establish what uh, Father Hezekiah was just talking about before uh, I, I, I came on. Namely, we have a church. That church is founded by Jesus Christ. And uh, so, uh, you know, you have to begin and you have to say, well, why the Catholic Church? Well, aside, you know, you know we, we take a look at the benefits of the Catholic Church, the Holy Eucharist, the Sacrament of Reconciliation, you know, the great scientific, uh, you know, and, and faith-filled synthesis of reason and faith and and we take a look at all the things that the church has done, you know, the, the largest healthcare system in the world. 26% of the world's healthcare system today is Catholic Church. You know, uh, we, we have 98,000 elementary schools, 48,000 um, uh, high schools, uh, 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 1,400 universities. I mean, we own the educational establishment. We own the healthcare establishment. I mean, there is no larger institution. I mean, the kids are going, wow, this is all the Catholic Church. Yeah, not only that, public welfare, you know, orphanages, you know, you know, the poorest of the poor, all the houses of the dying, all these things. Catholic, 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 you know, are, are just, you know, all over the place in charity and love. Okay, that's all good. You know, but wait, what's, what's a primary historical reason for this? Because Jesus actually said to Peter, right? You are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall never prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you declare, bound on earth shall be bound in heaven, loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we do a complete exegesis of that passage, but what's really important, and this doesn't come out in the module five modules for the 12 plus, it's too complicated for the kids, but the advanced modules for the uh, seniors in high school, juniors and seniors in high school, and, and for the college kids, will have all of this in it. Just to know, for example, everybody says, well, that's just Matthew. Matthew uh, put that in. That's just a Matthean redaction. Oh, yeah? 
I don't think so. Because if you actually look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, you can see in chapter one and chapter two, where Paul's talking about his own conversion and his own call to the apostolic seat, to leadership within the church. He starts using all these terms that come right out of Matthew 16, um, 17 through 19. All these terms, Semitic teams. You know, when, when does Paul ever call, um, you know, Peter, um, you know, Simon Barjona? You know, I mean, never except for in those texts when he's talking about his own commission as an apostle. He's comparing himself to Peter, and he's using the exact text that we see in Matthew. Not only that, I mean, there's all kinds of other things that are uh, the Semitism, what we call Hebrew background things that, that Paul is using. And we list those things uh, for the kids to see to say, it's very, very likely that Paul is looking at a text very similar to Matthew 16, uh, 17 through 19. Then, of course, you have the Johannine text which has the, uh, the threefold commissioning of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. But nobody else gets that commission, just Peter. And then in the Lucan gospel, make no mistake about it, Luke is, is really a, you know, a Luke-Acts combination. Luke wrote both parts you know, uh, himself. And, and so the Acts of the Apostles, you're not going to get a commissioning of Peter in Jesus. What you get is Peter's the center of attention in Acts. He's the center of the church. He's the one that makes the deliberated decisions regarding the Gentiles. He's the one that is consulted and speaks under his own authority uh, at the Council of Jerusalem before James ever gets to do anything. James has to appeal to Moses. Peter appeals to himself. And Paul comes third after the rest of the guys, right? After, J- after Peter and James, etc. You start looking at, you know, who's making all the decisions in the early church? Peter, Peter, Peter. Who's in charge of the ministry to the Jewish people initially? It's Peter. And of course, it's handed over to James when Peter uh, zips over to Rome. So the, the, the main thing, though, is we've got a lot of evidence here that this commissioning of Peter is not just by accident. Then what we try to go into, and, and this is important, is because I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? And, and you know, most things slip right by the kids. They don't know the significance of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is creating an office of prime minister. This is the same thing that we see in Isaiah 2020, when Isaiah is actually coming to deliver an oracle against Shebna. Shebna, you've been a rat, and so you're going to get deposed, and I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give them to Eliakim. And Eliakim is, is uh, uh, you know, uh, going to have this power of prime minister. Whoever, uh, whatsoever he sh- uh, shuts, none shall open. Or whatsoever uh, he opens, none shall shut. Get it? I mean, it's like holy mackerel. It's like Jesus took right the the the, uh, the the Isaiah oracle and he puts it right to Peter, but makes these transitions instead of opens and shuts. Whatsoever you declare bound will be bound. Whatsoever you declare loosed shall be loosed in heaven. In heaven. I mean, it's like uh, you can bind in heaven on this earth. Peter, is that, that's exactly what is being said. It's an almost absolute, uh, you know, juridical authority. I, I mean, there can be no mistake about this. But what's important is he's creating an office. And Peter is the first holder of that office. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. If you look at that translation, the keys are already there. The keys to the office of prime minister are there. So the office of prime minister is there. And 
I, Jesus, am going to hand this over to you, Peter, as the first recipient of it. But I intend to give it. I'm not just going to make this office for you. This office will be made for all successors to you. Because not being an unbright lad, uh, I shouldn't say that really about our Lord, but Jesus knows very well that there's going to be factions and there's going to be all kinds of trouble. And so he's got to head it off at the past. And the only way of heading off, right, Jesus lives in a time, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everybody's fighting factions everywhere, right? How do you solve the problem? One single definitive authority source with the key to bind and loose in the kingdom of heaven during his life on earth, his office on earth. Now, if that's the case, then what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, for the sake of unity and for the sake of the truth, I'm not going to let this thing be factioned into, you know, little bitty pieces forever and ever. So the main um, part that we want to see is, okay, how many Protestant churches were created over 500 years? 36,000 Protestant churches in 500 years. How come only one Catholic church? Because you had a definitive, highest, supreme, juridical, and magisterial, that means teaching, teaching authority. So you have, you know, once Jesus does this, the, the unity of the church is secured with the capacity to bind, then devil isn't going to, you know, have any power over it. And, and even people like Arnold Toynbee, secular historian, et cetera, et cetera, these guys, Basically, they, they didn't have, uh, um, you know, any uh, real sensitivity, you know, Toynbee didn't, uh, you know, to, to the church itself. But finally, Toynbee, who is one of the greatest historians of uh, secular civilization who ever lived, finally comes up with this quote and he goes, you know, there is no um, institution like the Catholic Church. It has outlasted every single secular institution in every single culture by far. And he begins to articulate with the helmet of, of the papacy and the shield of, 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 of the, the magisterium and the spear, blah, 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 blah. And he goes on and on. And you, you look at it and you go, is this guy converting from a secular to a, uh, to a Christian and a Catholic? I'd say he's coming real close because as a historian and a historiographer, he's just baffled. He's, oh, in the world can this occur? And so, you know, we give the kids kind of this quote and say, well, what do you think, you guys? You know, I mean, you know, clearly Jesus very, very likely established a church somewhat according to the formula we see in Matthew 16, 18, which is not particular to Matthew's gospel, but it's all the shadows, all the, you know, the underlying uh, fabric, as it were, is revealed in, the, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And then, of course, uh, with respect to, to, to Acts of the Apostles, that's Luke's contribution, and then John's separate text on the triple commissioning of Peter as a chief shepherd. Okay, so we just say, yeah, very likely Jesus started the church. And he started it, first and foremost, not, yes, he calls the 72. He gives them power over devils. He gives them power to heal, give them power to preach, you know, et cetera. But then to the 11, he gives the Matthew 18, 18 commission. And then, in, um, you know, first and foremost, in the Matthew 16, 18 commission to Peter alone, right? You know, you are Petros, or Pan, right? Sifa, Sifa, or Kephas, Kephas in, in Aramaic. But, you know, you have to translate it as Petros, Petra, right? Upon this rock, I will build my church. The pun doesn't quite come out in Greek. You can tell it was written in Aramaic and translated into Greek. 
But the point that is really key is this is very well-founded, and Jesus very, very likely started a hierarchical church and gave vast powers to Peter that he didn't give to the 11, more powers to the 11 that he didn't give to the 72, etc. It starts that way. Now, let's just, uh, we go zooming into these miracles. Okay, and so uh, why? Because kids like scientifically validated miracles. Something that's palpable, empirical, and scientifically validated, it works. So we picked miracles that are specifically Catholic. Like, you know, uh, the Catholics are constantly getting busted in the chops for, you know, Marian doctrines and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and for believing in saints. Let's just take these three doctrines that are controversial among a Protestant group of people right now. Are there miracles associated? Lots. I just, you know, zoom uh, right right through this. And, and you guys can, you know, if you want to look at, I have a whole article on this, uh, if you just uh, go to modulacenter.com, just look at contemporary miracles. Uh, if you want just to go to module five, just go to the last half of the, of the, of the module is on these miracles. I'll just give you a, a sense real quickly with respect to the, our lady of Guadalupe, that one really nails the kids. Why? Cause it's empirically based here. You have this image. And what's really strange about the image is it's uh, it's emblazoned on you know a, a, a tilma that's made of cactus fiber. Cactus fiber disappears literally. I mean, it just de- degenerates in, in about thirty years. Not this cactus fiber. Well, over five hundred years later, the cactus fiber is still undecayed, perfectly preserved. Bizarro. It just cannot happen organically. Uh, you know, uh, cactus fiber just can't last that long. It's got to show some decay. This does not. Secondly, uh, you look at these, uh, the, the, the dyes that are actually, now there, there are, there is paint on Our Lady of Guadalupe, right? The, the rays that are coming out of her, the moon under her, uh, these things are painted later by an artist. The paint is flaking, right? There's decay all over the place. You can see molecular decomposition, but in the actual image of Our Lady, right? If you look at that, there is no decay, no flaking uh, in the pigments that are attached to those cactus fibers. But secondly, those cactus fibers, there's not a single natural pigment, a natural pigment, not a single one uh, in in that uh, painting. Yet, in in you know when uh, Gua, when Guadalupe actually occurred over 500 years ago. Guess what? There wasn't a synthetic, a synthetic pigment available. So how, what are these pigments? They're like miracle pigments, I guess, you know. And the Callahan studies are very, very thorough, by the way. But the key thing, the real thing that nails the kids is the eyes of Our Lady. And so if you look into the pupils of the eyes, and, and then you, you can actually do these, uh, um, you know, um, photographs, which are significantly enhanced, and then you use some very sophisticated computer programming to remove the noise, you know, that you get, you get regular noise from the weave of the fabric and all these kinds of things. You can remove that uh, with a computer and actually make a computer enhanced image. That's pretty remarkable. And here are three things you find, which just blow the kids' minds. Number one, you can actually see in the eyes of our lady, you can actually see uh, uh, Bishop Zumaraga and his whole, uh, you know, retinue, uh, they're just sitting there looking in amazement at who? The Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, she's looking at them, looking at her. 
And so it's really interesting, but you can see them. And I mean, you get to see the beard of, 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 of uh, Zumarraga. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I don't know the Spanish that well. But, you know, you can see his retinue behind him. You can see that there's some uh, slaves behind the, the, the you know, the, the, uh, the other groups and so forth. It's really interesting. The second thing that's, that's really uh, uh, interesting is there is, a, a, you know, the curvature of the retina. Now, of course, in, in, you know, in the 1500s, give me a break in Mexico. They don't know about the curvature of the retina. However, our ladies' retinas, uh, as she is gazing upon this uh, photograph, which, of course, is she's looking at them and the image is reversed as just as it would be reversed for us, right? You know, going the other way around, you know, but it's following the curvature, the exact curvature of the retina. How? How? How is it possible? And thirdly, there's a, an effect called the Samson-Prakenji effect. And, and there's like a triple reflection in, in everybody's retina. That triple reflection is actually evident in, in the eyes of our lady. Now, all I'm saying is, uh, you, you explain this to the kids, it's like mind-blowing. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, some miracles that are important. Let me just quickly go through. Our Lady of Lourdes, this is absolutely fantastic. Now, um, you know, I think everybody knows about Bernadette Lourdes and probably saw the song of Bernadette and, you know, has read Ruth Cranston's book, maybe, you know, The Miracle of Lourdes and some other things. It, it, it's really wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go into the history of it, but what I do want to say is, you know, as you know, the spring of water welled up and had very uh, remarkable curative powers. And what's important about Lourdes is they have a, the, what's called the Lourdes International Medical Bureau. And that Lourdes International Medical Bureau, you can access all these records of all the various miracles that have taken place, either for examination by the scientific group or the ones that actually passed scrutiny. And, and it's very strict, very strict. You can't have any possibility of a psychological, physical, right, you know, cause of, of, of the miracle, et cetera. So, you know, I, we just, I'll just give a couple of instances of it. It's really things that you know push the kids right over the line. For example, uh, Marie Bailey, uh, who is a very very sick um, uh, woman, she she basically has tuberculosis, but she's got you know in her abdomen, you know you know extreme distension with hard masses, right? You know it's very clear uh, that she is in you know a state where. Uh, if it continues for about a few days longer, uh, you know, she will die uh, from, you know, the stress on her body and, and the, the, the distension, the hard masses and, and you know, the, uh, um, uh, you know, the peritonitis and so forth that's, that's coming uh, from these wounds. So uh, from this uh, disease. So uh, she is on her, you know, on a train. She, she decides to go, uh, last ditch attempt, go to Lourdes and get um, uh, some Lord's water. So she's on the train and she's dying on the train. And who comes on the train but this nice secular doctor who's at the medical school at Lehigh, um named Alexis Carroll. And uh, Alexis Carroll goes, oh my gosh, you know, lay, lay her down, you know, and, and uh, you know, well, let's get a stretcher for her. And, you know, and uh, she won't make it probably, but, you know, let's try and do it. So he takes over the case kind of, and he's this agnostic, you know, um, you know, maybe borderline even, you know, non-believer, um, you know, and he uh, he's taking care of her. And uh, as a young medical student, you know, that quickly when she gets there to Lourdes, you know, they take up the uh, 
with a stretcher with the point on it. They lay her down and they take, you know, they can't even immerse her in the bath. You know, they got to take a big pitcher of this Lord's water and they, they, you know, just put it on her abdomen and, you know, searing pain. She just screams for pain, but they do it again a second time. It can actually, Alexis Carroll's describing this in his notes, you know, that, you know, that the abdomen is going down, but I see no effusion of any fluid that would have been residual from the actual, uh, you know, loss of these hard masses and the fluids that were causing the distension in the abdomen. I mean, it's like it's just disappearing and, and being healed. Then the third time uh, they poured the water on her. And of course, she's completely cured. And, and she gets up and Alexis Carroll is going, whoa, whoa man, you know, this is really d- different. And so he's taking copious notes on, on, on this thing. And, and uh, she, Marie Bailey, as you may know, she goes off and becomes a nun and, you know, spends another 30 years being, having a very productive life, et cetera, in, in a very hardcore, you know, community of sisters who took asceticism really seriously. Now, the, the point, though, is Alexis Carroll goes back to Lyon, but he has, his notes are published on this, on this miracle because he actually submitted it you know, to the Bureau, and so uh, the uh, International Medical Bureau. And so um, it comes to pass that uh, his colleagues at the University of Lyon Medical School hear about this and go, surely you're not attesting to a miracle. And of course, uh, Alexis Carroll says, well, no, I didn't attest to a miracle. There's no scientific test for a miracle. You know, I mean, supernatural cause, scientific tests are restricted to natural causes. So I didn't say that. And he said, well, what did you say? I said, it's possible that it's a miracle because I can't find any other physical explanation. For that, he was booted out of uh, the medical school at Lyon for just saying a miracle was possible. So, of course, the Rockefeller uh, University in, in New York says, hey, you know, you're a young, talented French guy. Come over here and work for us. So, of course, he goes over, invents the technique for vascular surgery and wins the Nobel Prize. Can you imagine kicking a Nobel Prize winner out of your medical school because he was attested to America, just saying the ironies of life are thick. But anyway, again, the kids are amused by this. Then the case of Gabriel Garcon and John Trainer, I'll just basically describe them together. They're wonderful because they involve a double thing, the Lord's water plus the Eucharistic blessing. Gabriel Gargon was one of these guys who basically gets into, you know, a, uh, uh, what would I call it, a train wreck, head on. Um, you know, with another train. He is a mail distributor, and he does the sorting of the French mail on the train, you know, right in the forefront there of, of, of the train, and as, as the train's going, and then as they, you know, reach these various stations, boom, you know, they drop off the mail sack and so forth. So that's his job mail sort. Anyway, boom, his train hits another train head on. Gargon goes sailing out of the front cab of this train. And as he just falls face first right onto the ground, and you know he's just uh, you know organ damage everywhere, bone damage everywhere, atrophying you know, legs, you know uh, muscles unusable in, in in the legs, et cetera, et cetera. You know the guy's damaged, really damaged. So of course it, it, you know he hasn't taken any regular food in nearly a year, getting intravenous feeding, artificial feeding all the time, and so they say okay. Uh, what's left for old Gargan? Well, nothing. You, you have to, you know, bring him to Lourdes. So they take him to Lourdes. And the interesting thing was because the French government, he was a federal employee of the French government, 
And because he was, they had all these medical tests, you know, uh, done. They and, and they had all the uh, x-rays that were done. They could see all the damage uh, that was done prior to his going to Lourdes. Excellent stuff. Goes off to Lourdes. And he gets there and, you know, he's again, he's like Marie Bailey. You know, he's going to die any day now. The, the train ride nearly kills him. So, but he gets there and, you know, they uh, put him into the bath and nothing happens to Gargan. So, of course, you know, that's the end for him. So they bring him out and they just said, okay, you know, uh, we're putting you back on the stretcher here, you know, and, uh, you know, they put him on a cart and they're wheeling him back over to the, there's a, you know, these hostels uh, that you, you know, that sick go to. So they're wheeling him over to the hostel, and there comes this Eucharist. If, if you know Lourdes, these Eucharist processions going like all the time. So the, this uh, the bishop comes with this monstrance, sees this guy on his last legs, no pun intended, and he basically blesses him with the Eucharist uh, in this monstrance as he's passing by. Gargon literally gets out of his stretcher. Now, this is a guy who hasn't watched. I mean, his muscles are all atrophied. He's got bone break, right? He's, he's got, you know, um, uh, basically hasn't eaten a single thing for a year because all he can do is receive, you know, intervening. He's getting, I mean, his muscles are working. They're not only intact, they're actually working like he's been walking for a while. And so th- this is really bizarre rama and, and so people are looking at him and go, miracle. And they catch all the x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. Really fascinating thing. Um, you know, then John Trainer. Movies being made about John Trainer right now. Uh, similar sort of thing. He's in Gallipoli. And he is in, you know, in, in this uh, Turkish campaign, right? Uh, uh, Riders of the Light Brigade, et cetera. He's there and he's with the English Army in World War I. And what happened? You know, he's, a, he's one of these leaders, big, strong guy. He's one of these leaders, Germans, machine gun, uh, uh, you know, the guy all over the place. So he got a completely atrophied arm, you know, and this, you know, I mean, just shot off the flesh of his arm and he's got a big old bullet hole right here. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, I shouldn't even say this to you, but you can see the brain throbbing right through the, uh, the, the, the skull and so forth. So they had to put a metal plate in there. So that the idea then is trainer is in a wheelchair, hasn't walked, has a completely atrophied left arm. He's got a bullet hole in his forehead. And so he goes off to Lourdes. Same deal, except uh, trainers on his last leg, spends his last cent. Everybody comes together and the bishop begs him, please, John, don't go. You know, I mean, uh, you know, he's from Liverpool. He's just, don't go, please, you know. If, if, if you go there, you're going to just die. And John said, what, what, what's the point of living, you know? I, I'm going to die anyway over here. I'm going to give it my shot. So the old guy goes over there, and, and he, actually he's very, you know, uh, uh, young in age, but he's just incapacitated completely. Same thing as Gargon. So, you know, he gets the, the, in the Lourdes bath, nothing. Then he's being wheeled in the cart on the way back. He's coming back, and Bishop comes by with a big Eucharistic procession, gives him the blessing of the Eucharist. Same thing. John Trainer, after the Eucharistic blessing, gets up, except this time he doesn't go back on the stretcher. He goes zinging over to the grotto, running. I mean, to the grotto, 
to thank, you know, kneeling in front of Our Lady, you know, that where the, 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 the pools are, you know, kneeling in front, you know, to, to, of, of the grotto to, to give thanks. And people are going, John, you can't do this. But he's doing it. I mean, he's absolutely, you know, he's almost so delirious with his capacity. He, he almost kind of has this forgetfulness of what his previous condition was. So the bishop is saying, you know, John, everybody's going to be looking at you. You're going to come back to Liverpool and there's going to be crowds and crowds of people, you know, that are, that are there to gaze at you because they all saw you previously and you are like totally whole. And, uh, you know, John Trainer, you know, went on to live a life. As I said, there's, there's going to be a movie of him, good x-rays, et cetera. I mean, how do you heal a whole, you know, hole with a metal plate in it, in your head with an atrophied left arm, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, obviously a miracle has happened. Flesh has been uh, renovated, uh, things of that nature, which just don't happen. And he lived for uh, quite a long time uh, after that in, in perfect health. He actually was carrying bundles of coal, uh, just to let you know, he really had a super cure. Um, enough said, uh, you know, Lourdes just has a lot of these things. And the International Medical Bureau is uh, truly wonderful. But again, the kids get, you know, Fatima, the miracle of the sun. I'll just mention this in passing. There's so much there. But, um, you know, the, the miracle of the sun, it, you know, was witnessed by somewhere between thirty to 70,000 folks. So, I mean, a lot of folks were in that grotto, but not just in the grotto, in the surrounding vicinity, right, almost up to three miles away. And what happens is, most of you know, right, a disc uh, that looks like the sun, uh, you know, it looks like the sun is spinning on its axis, just throwing off colors and lights of every kind. Zoom! It's coming right towards all the people. All people are going, you know, uh, down to the ground, they think it's all over with, right? You know, the, the sun's going to just, you know, collapse into them and, 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 and destroy them. People are blessing themselves, kneeling down, right? Exactly at the time that Lucia actually says, this is going to happen on this date at this time, come to this grotto, this is going to happen. Now, of course, was this a solar phenomenon? No, it wasn't a solar phenomenon. Because if it were a solar phenomenon, you'd have seen it in every single telescope in the world simultaneously, which didn't happen. But it was an atmospheric phenomenon. It's almost as if this big disk, a huge lens of sorts, is sitting up there suspended above the area where all the, the, the visitors are gathered, right? And, and the, this big lens, you know, which has, you know, it's, it's proportioned so that the, the colors will fly out of it starts spinning on its own axis. And it's almost like this uh, atmospheric phenomenon, this lens is kind of coming in, leaving the sun intact. But the the, the refraction and reflection of the sun is really at variance with what's going on with this uh, very precise solar phenomenon uh, that's causing this to happen. What's even weirder is there's all, you know, it's raining all day uh, before uh, Lucy and the crowds were gathering, so pools of water everywhere. After the, the, the solar phenomenon, after the lens goes back into the sky and the sun resumes its normal portion, everything's dried up. Now, this happened over a 10-minute period. All I can tell you is there's something weird happened at Fatima, and not only weird, but really glorious. And it, it, it's, it's quite a phenomenon, and it was witnessed by a lot of people, a lot of scientists, a lot of lawyers, a lot of you know, uh, you know, press people, et cetera. It, 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 you know, nobody is saying, oh, nothing happened here. So uh, you, you take a look at it. There's, there's been several really good books with lots of good photographs that have been 
uh, written about uh, fact. Okay, a uh, quick couple of Eucharistic miracles, and then we can kind of, uh, you know, put things uh, in, into position here. Uh, Eucharistic miracles are really important, and, and the reason is kids like palpable, scientifically validated evidence for things that they don't get. They don't get the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. First thing you got to do is explain that Jesus had this intention, and we do that too much to talk about right now. The second thing to do is to say, hey, look at these 21st, uh, 20th and 21st century miracles. So the first one we look at is 20th century one, 1996 Buenos Aires uh, uh, Eucharistic miracle. What's so special about this Eucharistic miracle is that it was overseen by Pope uh, Francis when he was uh, Archbishop Bergoglio in, in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, you know, somebody, a host has been uh, uh, dropped or desecrated, one or the other. And so uh, this lady finds the host, takes it to the uh, priest, uh, who in turn says, okay, you know, I'll just put it in a tabernacle and a glass of water, and it will dissolve within two or three days. And uh, thank you for doing this. Well, they go back to the tabernacle after two or three days, and no, no, there's not, uh, the host is still there, but the host is being transformed into a piece of flesh, tissue. And so, uh, you know, the, the priest calls up Bergoglio right away and says, hey, this is bizarro. And Bergoglio says, just leave it in there for a couple, three months, just see what happens. No decomposition of the, of the, of the tissue because they took pictures of it when they uh, redeposit it back in the tabernacle. They take it out three months later, take the photographs again. You can just you, use kind of a synchronous photographic method to, to, to just take a look at it. And you can see that the, the flesh is not decomposing. So Bergoglio says, um, you know, to this guy, Dr. Gomez, he says, look, uh, you know, take some samples of this, thin slices of this tissue and send it to the New York lab at NYU, which is, you know, the, basically the, uh, the, the lab that, that does the, the various, uh, um, you know, uh, postmortem studies, um, you know, for the whole state of New York. He says, just send it up to, the, to this lab. And, uh, uh, you know, just uh, get a report on what the tissue is, origin of the tissue, et cetera. So they send it up there. And this guy, Frederick Zugaby, who I was just talking about, uh, this is what really got him going. Uh, and that's why he did the shroud studies later than the Eucharistic miracle. But in 1996, he looks at this thing and he writes back. He says, this is a, really a bizarre tissue scene. And so he says, uh, the reason is threefold. Uh, number one you know, this tissue comes from the upper uh, left ventricle of the heart. And he says, uh, that's interesting. But number one, um, there are a lot of white blood cells that are embedded in the tissue itself. Now, the thing is, is <laughs> white blood cells die almost immediately after the body dies. The only way you can get white blood cells to stay around is if you remove a, that, that tissue sample from the body before the man dies. So you'd have to take it out of a living organ in a living body to preserve those white blood cells. But here's the other thing that's really interesting about it, aside from the fact that it doesn't decompose, uh, that the, the tissue is still non-decomposed, is that those white blood cells have protruded into the cell walls in the ventricle walls. Now that's really interesting because white blood cells only do that again during times of polytrauma. That's when they occur. 
So, I mean, the question I always ask the kids is, well, here, look, um, do you think that the Catholic Church, in order to perpetrate a fraud, actually killed this guy? I I mean, uh, first of all, uh, opened this guy up for no, first tortured the guy. So beat him around the chest severely so he'd have a polytrauma. Then you open him up before he's dead and then remove a chunk of his heart, thereby killing him and torturing him while killing him in order to perpetrate a fraud. I don't think so. If that's the case, then you got a lot of splaining to do because really this thing is absolutely enigmatic. Then you get the miracle of the Eucharistic miracle at text. I'm not, that's in Mexico in 2006. Not going to go into that. But then this new one, 2011, um, in uh, Sokolka, Poland. This one is a doozer. And uh, essentially, uh, you not only have the same phenomenon, upper left ventricle wall, AB positive blood type, and white proliferation of white blood cells, white blood cells embedded in the ventricle walls, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you see this and you go, oh, this is really uh, bizarre, same as Buenos Aires. But now what's interesting is you can actually see the substance of the host and the substance, you know, that looks like bread being transformed into this substance of flesh. It is literally not just contiguous, but continuous. I mean, so that that you can see gradations of of flesh um, tissue, I mean, uh, uh, tissue uh, uh, bread mixture, right? And you can see you know, that it just gets more and more, right? As, as you get closer to the flesh, you can see the gradation increasing. It's like it's a seamless unit. The flesh is literally growing out of the consecrated hose. And, and, and this under electron microscopic testing. So you got all these guys in pool and they're taking out these electron microscopes and they're looking at this thing. And the, 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 the actual gradation of, of and con- continuity and contiguity uh, that, that's taking place, you know, in the in the actual substance of the host going into the flesh is so refined that even NASA technology could could not replicate it. And so this is, uh, uh, but go to Sokolka, S O K O L K A. You can see some uh, fantastic images of this. It's a it's a mind blower for the kids. Well, I'm not going to get to the levels of happiness today, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but that bring, gives me an excuse to come back another time. Now, I'm not going to get back to the suffering uh, today, I'm, I'm sorry, but I got enthusiastic about uh, these other matters. But I'll tell you, if you can provide this evidence to the kids, if they can see the significance of this evidence, which most of them can because they, they have at least an adequately developed critical apparatus and enough scientific knowledge so that they know this is really interesting, really special. This is a real kind of evidence that reaches back into history and shows the grace of God working in a miracle, or shows, you know, the, the, the risen uh, Jesus, uh, you know, manifest on the shroud, etc. And and that really um, uh, helps them, uh, you know, to to you know not only maintain their faith but not jump off the agnostic cliff. So I thank you for your kind attention. I know I went over. I I. Um, uh, would be glad to entertain a, a question or two uh, if, if, if you wish me to, but then I probably ought to uh, let you uh, go in peace. Um, but um, I, I would say that uh, if you want to get this and show it to your kids, go to CredibleCatholic.com 
click on the seven essential modules and then um, go to modules four and five. So um, that's for today's lesson, for yes, last week's lesson, modules one and two. Thanks so much. Thank you, Father Spitzer. Thank you. Really, let me tell you, I was teaching all of this without any notes in front of you. Forget <laughs> the shroud, the miracles, Father Spitzer, and yeah. his teaching ability is really <laughs> you are a gift from God and a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in being here with us and uh, and mm -hmm. sharing the gift that you have uh, that you have received from the Lord and then sharing it with all of us. We really appreciate that. Well, and the most most exciting things that half of those are catechists, Father. Bring it to your catechism classes. Yes. Confirmation teachers, I'm begging you out there. It's last chance gulch, you know, is to get these miracles over the shroud stuff over to these to your kids before they do confirmation. It will elevate their enthusiasm totally. Right. In other words, the, the, the minute you, you give that to them, their spirit changes for the rest of the class. Then they're willing to listen to what's the gift of the Holy Spirit, what happens in confirmation, because they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, and they believe in the Catholic Church. It makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. So, uh, so look, we got a couple. Father, do you have a time for just a couple questions? Yeah, a couple, and then I'm going to Zoom. But uh, yeah, just uh, take a couple. Sure. How can one respond to Hawkins' quote, "No beginning" end quote, based on formulas using imaginary time? Also, can you comment on his statement along the lines of quantum fluctuations in a vacuum can precipitate matter? Thus, uh, thus he says he doesn't need a creator since math can create something out of nothing. Yeah, okay. Uh, quickly, um, uh, let's uh, go to the first. Well, uh, let's answer the second one first, uh, quantum fluctuations in a vacuum. Uh, yes, just remember, uh, this is called a false vacuum. And so the, the thing to remember is that uh, when you have what's called a, a, a you know, fluctuation of false vacuum, uh, basically that can give rise to something that is energetic or particle-like in a positive sense, no question about it. But you see, you can't identify the fluctuation of false vacuum with nothing. This is the whole point that, that Hawking is, is trying to, to get away with, but it's not nothing. You know, a vacuum is very much something because a vacuum exists in a quantum or other kind of field, and the fluctuation occurs through field activity in the vacuum. This is not nothing. This is very much something. Now you say, well, it's not, uh, you know, something in the sense that it's energy yet because it's coming from the false vacuum. Yes, but it's not nothing. I mean, this is like my bank account, right? My bank account frequently has a zero balance. But that's not nothing because I have a real bank account, which is something, in a real bank, which is something, you know, where I make a deposit, which is something. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is a completely, you know, co confusing a false vacuum of fluctuation uh, with nothing is, is nothing short of dishonest. It's, it's equivocal to the man. Now, let's go. Uh, what was your first question again? Sorry about that. Yeah, how, does, how does one respond to, doc, uh, to Hawkins' uh, no beginning yeah. uh, based yeah. on formulas using imaginary time? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a little bit complex question because you asked me about the equations. So what I'm going to um, I'll explain it in, in general and then go to my book, uh, which is called New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy. Go to chapter one. 
and where I have the, the, the consideration of the uh, Hawking uh, hypothesis, and I look at, you know, uh, what, what does the no beginning hypothesis mean? It means that essentially that there is a curvature at the end. Instead of it resolving to a point, it, reserves, it, it resolves to a, a rather large a cylindrical curve, more or less like a baseball bat, you know, the handle of a baseball bat. Now, uh, that, you know, you look at that and you go, well, first of all, that's not nothing. And it, it, but is it a no beginning? And the answer is no, it's absolutely a beginning. It's a beginning, but you can't identify the precise place of the beginning. But is there a limit to temporality intrinsic to that curvature? Absolutely there is. Doesn't have to resolve to a point. Uh, the curvature itself just, uh, you know, uh, is sufficient to do that. It stops. Temporality stops where the very end of the bat is. Now, where that, you know, uh, point is in the space-time uh, metric, we don't know. But time doesn't continue going backwards. This is a complete misnomer. Now, you're right. He uses imaginary time in order to do this. Now, imaginary time, is, it's a configuration that, that is used uh, in basically Feynman diagrams. And Feynman diagrams try to predict, you know, okay, what's going to be the, the spatiotemporal position relative to the collapse of, you know, an, what we call a wave function to an eigenstate. Now, that's just a lot of gobbledygook to mean that it's an indefinite thing. But in order to do what's called summing up of a part, you know, of, of all possible, you know, um, conditions of the particle, you have to use imaginary time for some of them because you can't use them in real time. But the problem is it's a negative radical. It's an imaginary number. And of course, there's no nothing in reality that you can assign this to. So does this uh, does this really actually prove that there was no beginning? No, it's a it's a misuse of imaginary time, which can't be applied to reality. Number two, it's a misinterpretation of the of the uh, space time dynamic and the space time geometry uh, that a no beginning universe uh, really represents. He's implying that temporality temporality can continue back beyond the baseball bat. Uh, handles, uh, you know, a finite point, which it can't. And this is explained in my book, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I don't get into the mathematics too much in, in the book, but I footnote a lot of articles that talk about this and debunk it in chapter one. Thank you, Father. Just one last question. I'm, I was just thinking about Jesus um, when he resurrected and then also when he was like appearing and disappearing um, in front mm -hmm. of the apostles. Um, is that any, can we understand that in any way, uh, scientifically, you know, like how Einstein had, you know, energy, can, uh, mass can turn into energy and, and, and things like that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, and, and here's the, the upshot. The answer is no. Uh, you, you remember those little, uh, transponders or whatever they were called in Star Trek, you know, or the, the, the guy gets, you know, uh, basically turned into an energetic condition, you know, he's there on the planet. And they bring him up in this transporter by turning him into energy. And then, um, uh, you know, he reappears there in the good old enterprise. Is this a real possibility in, in terms of physics? Absolutely not. If you transform that much matter, remember, E equals MC squared. That means you're transforming energy, you know, a, a mass, excuse me, by a factor of the speed of light squared. So each piece of mass has got this humongous amount of energy. So if you energize, 
you know, a full human being, that would be the equivalent of maybe 100,000 atomic bombs. This would do some real damage to the enterprise, let alone the person involved. And of course, the idea of reconstituting them, no way. Now, if this really happened, if Jesus were not transphysical, if he were really a physical entity, and he's literally, you know, kind of appearing, disappearing, reappearing, if you're trying to explain this in terms of E equals MC squared, forget about it. I mean, you know, every time he's doing it, you know, the, half the, 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 you know, the locale is blowing up, right, uh, wherever he's doing this. So this is not done by a, a physical means. Now, this is being done by a transphysical means. We don't have any way of explaining that. I mean, Star, Star Trek transporter, complete fiction. Absolutely impossible to produce. You know, like I said, the factor is speed of light squared, 186,200 miles per second squared. This is, this, this is your, the, the factor. Of, so you take a little gram of mass, you multiply it by that number. That's a heck of a lot of energy. And then uh, if you got a whole person, holy mackerel, you know, thousands of atomic bombs. So, yeah, that's... Uh, I'm afraid that's very transphysical. It's very much coming from God. But God can do anything he wants. He can move in and out of, uh, you know, reality as he wishes. You know, frankly, if he wanted to do it within, you know, the, the time of a quantum fluctuation, you know, which is one over uh, 10, you know, to the uh, 40 second seconds, right? That's really small number, right? That's 10 to the minus 42 or minus 43. It's a decimal point right? 42 zeros into one. Uh, that's a real small fraction, but he could do it. Why not? You know, right in between all those quantum fluctuations and uh, it'd be nothing to him. All time is one to him. So, uh, um, you know, um, we just uh, leave it at that. And it's pretty much a, uh, um, yeah, God, you know, this is divine power being manifest. Uh, and I believe absolutely the truth of those accounts that he did appear and disappear right through the closed doors, right into the closed room, you know, right in front of his apostles and multiple, uh, you know, things to 500 brethren all at once, et cetera. Thank you, Father Spitzer. A beautiful way to end our evening and our two-part series with you. Look forward, uh, God willing, to welcoming you back to the Institute. Father Spitzer, once again, thank you very much. Uh, and ask you for your, your final blessing. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless all of these good people, but especially to bless them with that spirit of inspiration to take this information and share it with those, especially our young people who are in special need of it, so that as they begin to see the real evidence that you've left uh, of your risen presence among us, your love for us in the crucifixion, your, your, your manifestation in the, in the Holy Eucharist, as they see these things and begin to contemplate it more and more deeply through the evidence, they may also come to a more radical faith where they trust in you and follow you. Please, Lord, give us the grace to do this, and please make us apostles in your name, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.
and may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.